traditional Haggadah really has not changed very much in well over a thousand years, more than a thousand years. And which is very interesting is that even the variations between the, the Sephardic Haggadot and the Ashkenazic Haggadot are very inconsequential. There are very, almost no real differences between them. They're pretty much the same. Which is very interesting, especially given the fact that it, the Seder is something that's done inside the house, and one might expect that uh, there will be a, some important differences, distinctions, but they're very tiny differences in terms of all the Haggadot, pretty much the same. And that was not always the case. And we know from the Geniza, a lot of work has been done over the last hundred or so years, a little more than hundred years. In the Geniza, they discovered Haggadot that reflect the uh, traditions Haggadah. Reflect the traditions of Eretz Yisrael, the old Eretz Yisrael Haggadot. And there, there are some significant differences between that Haggadah and the Haggadah that we, uh, we have. The Haggadah that we have was pretty much standardized by the Gaonim, the Babylonian leadership prior to the 10th century, pretty much standardized. It was part of the whole dispute between the, Eretz Israel and Bavel. So the Babylonians won out, and the Haggadah is pretty much standardized. But the there were many differences between the Haggadah of Eretz Israel, some of them anyway, and the Haggadah that we have. For example, one of the interesting differences is that the Kiddush in the old Eretz Israel Haggadot is, is very different. It's a very expanded Kiddush, first of all. Many of them have poems in the middle of Kiddush at the Seder. And on top of that, many of the Haggadot, in addition to the extra piyutim in the middle of Kiddush, they had a different blessing over the wine. Completely different blessing over the wine. Not Bari Priyagafen, but a totally different blessing. So the, when this came to the attention of the Babylonians, Sajigon, for example, who actually wrote down a Haggadah, uh, he accepted some of it. Some of it he didn't reject. He said, it's okay to do it. We don't do what he said. And some of it he completely rejected as being totally out of place, such as the separate blessing for the cup of wine. So I, the Kiddush that we say at the Seder is the regular Kiddush. You say regular Kiddush at the same Kiddush at the Seder. You say the other day, Shabbos, Pesach, B'kayish Yisrael Vazmanim. You don't say B'kayish Shabbos, but basically it's the same. That's one thing. Another difference between the old Israelite Haggadot and the Haggadah that we have is, that, for example, many of them have the blessing at the Seder, She'osad Nisim Ravotenu. After Kiddush, make the blessing, A blessing that makes, seems to me, perfect sense, actually. You should make a blessing of Alanisim. Alanisim is a blessing we are making. We make the blessing at two occasions in the year, Hanukkah and Purim. The blessing that's made over a mitzvah that we are publicizing the mitzvah. So we make the blessing of Alanisim in conjunction with reading the Megillah. And we make the blessing of Alanisim in conjunction with lighting the Hanukkah candles. Night of Passover, it's all about talking about the miracles. That's what we talk about. Mitzvah called Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. One would have expected to find Alanisim at the Seder. But we don't say Alanisim at the Seder. The question is why not, actually. 
Simplest answer <coughs> is that we do say kind of aranisim at the Seder, but not exactly aranisim. We say a different blessing at the Seder, which is similar to aranisim. And that's the blessing that we are saying at the end of the section we call Magid. The word Haggadah. So the Haggadah is related to the word Magid. We tell the story. And the end, that's the, essentially the first half of the Seder. These photostats that you have are the first half of the Seder. Go up to the meal. So just before we eat the meal, we are making a blessing. Let me see where it is. Do we have this? I pray the last page. Let's see. It's the, uh, it's on page. Yeah, yeah, come here, photos here. Here, 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 here. It's on page 26. This is the Haggadah. First half of the Haggadah. On page 26, right towards the very end, see 26, it's front and back. So page 26, you have, where is this over here? Let's see. Yeah, page 27, actually. Page 27, says, lift the cup of wine. Baruch HaTo Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Asher Gyoranu V'Gaalot Avoteinu Mimitzrayim V'Gyano L'Alaylo Azeh L'Echobo Matzah Maror So we bless, the blessing is the God who redeemed us and our ancestors from Egypt. So some have said, and I myself wrote about this, that this blessing is a parallel to the blessing we call Sha'asa Nisim L'Avoteinu but there's a difference between the blessing of Shasanisim and this blessing. The blessing of Shasanisim Lavoteinu is the blessing is we thank God who did miracles for our ancestors at this time long, a long time ago. That's Shasanisim Lavoteinu. By Yemima Haim Basmanase in those days at this time. The blessing of Asher Gaulanu, however, is slightly different. The blessing of Asher Gaulanu, blessed are you, O God who redeemed us and our ancestors from Egypt. That's a very important distinction. Also, Nisim is, you say, they, God, you saved them. We're grateful that you saved our ancestors, did the miracle for the ancestors on this day. That's the blessing we make for him in Hanukkah. But at the Seder, the Nusach of the Seder is not also Nisim Lavoteinu, but it's also Nisim Lanuv Lavoteinu, as it were. Did miracles for us and for them, because we say at the Seder that in every generation we see ourselves as leaving Egypt. So the blessing of Shasan Nisim wouldn't be exactly the right blessing for us. That only talks about the ancestors. In fact, in the section before we say Hallel, which is a couple of pages earlier, on the bottom of page 25 in this Haggadah, we pick up the cup of wine, even just before we pick up the cup of wine, Lo avoteno bulvad God didn't only save our ancestors, God also saved us. So the difference between the Seder, the blessing of the Seder, and the Alhanisim is the Alhanisim is only about what happened to our forefathers. But the blessing of the Seder, Asher Galano, is us and the, us and our ancestors. So that's, that's it. Our, our Haggadah doesn't contain the blessing of Shasanisim, but some of the ancient Haggadot from the land of Israel, they did make the blessing of Al-Hanisim. Okay, there are other differences between the old Israelite Haggadot and the one we have. One of the interesting differences between some of them 
is that our Haggadah, the central feature of the Magid that we have, is a set of Drashot on four verses in Tvarim called Arami Ovedavi. That's the center of the Haggadah. There are a total of 21 Drashot on these Sukim. In the uh, Haggadah of ancient Israel, there are many fewer Drashot, much fewer Drashot. It's very, it's very concise. It's very brief. But the Haggadah that we have, standard Haggadah, are the Drashot on the four verses from Tvarim, from Deuteronomy, the pilgrim who brings the first fruits to the temple. That's the core of the Seder. Arami Ovedavi. Many people don't know that, but that is the core of the Seder. So now, but I thought we would, let me just make a couple of general observations about the structure of the Seder. And then we'll deal with one small piece of the Seder. So the Seder, it's called the Seder, which means that's an ordered event. And the ordering principle of the Seder, the main ordering principle of the Seder, is what we, for, uh, what we call the four cups of wine. There is a mitzvah, and the Talmud speaks of it, at the Seder to drink four cups of wine. It could be grape juice as well, but anyway, four cups of wine. So what are these four cups of wine? So the four cups of wine, first of all, it's actually very interesting. The four cups of wine are function at the Seder to order the events. It's an ordering principle, basically. And on each of the cups of wine, the Ashkenazic custom is that each of the time we drink a cup of wine at the Seder, we make the blessing, Bari Priya Geffen, Bari Priya Geffen. That's the custom of the Ashkenazim. The Sephardim don't do that. They do drink four cups of wine, but they don't make a blessing each time. For example, the second cup, there's no blessing because they made a blessing on the first cup and they're continuing to sit down at the same table. So they don't make a blessing. They just drink the second cup of wine without a blessing. But the Ashkenazim make a blessing each time. And what are these four cups of wine? What are these four blessings that we're making over the wine? So the first point is the following. It's a technical halachic point, but it's a very important point. The blessings at the Seder over the cup of wine, the cup of wine in general, has a legal halachic significance to it. For example, the first cup of wine that we drink is in conjunction with making Kiddush. The Seder starts with Kiddush, like every holiday. Start, start with Kiddush. Kiddush is a recitation about the day. So, for example, on Pesach, God shows us a Shabbat right? And God gave us this holy day of Passover, which is a remembrance of the Exodus from Egypt. We say that all the holidays. Blessed are you, O God, who sanctifies the Kaddish Yisrael of Asmanim, who sanctifies Israel in the, in the holy times. And then, after we say that blessing, it's a blessing. Blessing starts with Baruch, ends with Baruch. And after that blessing, you make another blessing. That we make a blessing on the wine and we drink it. Right? That's what we call Kiddush. It's always that way. Shabbos is the same thing. There's a blessing for Shabbos. Right? And then, so what is yeah, so what is this uh, business yeah, take, yeah. so what is this uh, 
what is this about? So what it's about is this. What it's about is there are many different mitzvot that we are required to do. Usually you do a mitzvah, mitzvah to say the Shema twice a day, mitzvah to pray, many mitzvot. Those are mitzvot, mitzvah to say Hallel. Usually these mitzvot, the mitzvah consists of a recitation or a reading a recitation, Kriya or whatever, and you read it, that's the end of it. But sometimes we have mitzvot that when we perform them, we perform them holding a cup of wine. For example, Kiddush. The mitzvah of Kiddush is, as the rabbis understand it, to make a recitation. On Shabbos, to say, today is, today is Shabbos. It's a holy day. It's a remembrance of the creation of the world by God and the fact that we left Egypt. That's Kiddush. And they formulated this recitation in terms of a blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem, etc. And they said something else, that when you make Kiddush on Shabbos and Yantiv, you are to make it over holding a cup of wine. Since you're making it over a cup of wine, you also make a blessing on the wine, otherwise you can't drink it. That's true of Kiddush. That's true of Havdalah. Havdalah is the same as Kiddush. It's a recitation. It's a recitation we make over a cup of wine. And once you make it over the cup of wine, you drink the cup of wine. At a wedding, there are two bless- sets of blessings at a wedding. There's a Kobirchus Erison. And that's made holding a cup of wine. And then there's Birchas Nesuin, also called Sheva Brachas. And the Sheva Brachas consists of six blessings. And the seventh blessing is Bari Priya Gefen. It's made over a cup of wine. Now sometimes a cup of wine is, is optional. For example, Birkata Mazon. You can say Birkata Mazon without a cup of wine. And you can say Birkata Mazon with a cup of wine. During the entire year, that's an option. It's a choice. Sometimes we have a big, big crowd of people. And they, maybe they're eating in shul or something, a hundred people. And often they say Birkata Mazon with a cup of wine. But that's an option. There's only one day in the year where it's not an option. One day in the year we have to bench over a cup of wine, which is what? Well, actually, here it's two days a year, the Seder. At the Seder, that's the third cup. The third cup is the cup we say over Birkat Mazon. The first cup is the cup we say over Kiddush. So in other words, the point being very simple, that of the four cups of wine... The first and the third cup are, one might say, the standard rule that when you say certain recitations, either you must say them over the cup of wine, or you may say them over the cup of wine. You must say Kiddush over a cup of wine or some other beverage. You must, you don't have your option. You may say Birkata Mazon over a cup of wine, but at the Seder, it's not an option. The Seder is the third coast. And once you're saying it over the <coughs> over the cup of, of wine you say a blessing on the wine in order to drink it now here's the other point that's very interesting the cup of wine the blessing over the cup of wine in each of those two cases is connected to another blessing Kiddush is itself a blessing blessing is a technical term which means it starts with Baruch and ends with Baruch there are all kinds of rules about what constitutes a blessing Kiddush is obviously a blessing. Baruch Hashem, it begins and it ends. Baruch Hashem, Mekadesh HaShabbat, Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hazmanim. So that's a, it's a bracha. In conjunction with that bracha, there's another blessing, Bore Priya Gefen. 
that's true of the, so the Seder, that's true of the first cup and the third cup. Now, what about the second cup of wine? When do we drink the second cup of wine? It's actually astonishing to me. I've got to tell you the truth. I hate to say this, but the Seder is the most performed ritual of any by far. The Jewish, I mean, different kinds of Seder, but many, many Jews have a Seder. And many Jews have a traditional Seder. And most Jews have a traditional Seder. They have no idea, actually, what they're actually doing at the Seder. I mean, it's, it boggles the mind, truly. Four cups of wine. No, what, what is four cups of wine? The second cup of wine is recited when? Second cup, before we eat. Just before we eat, after, after we begin Hallel. And it's recited in conjunction with another bracha. All the cups of wine are recited with another blessing. That's my point. The blessing we are reciting at the end of Magid is a blessing which I read to you before. It was page 26. It ends with the words, Blessed are you, O God, Redeemer of Israel. And then we, we, we drink a cup of wine. Whatever. So the second cup of wine, the blessing over the second cup of wine is recited in conjunction with the blessing of Asher Ga'alanu. Now what is the blessing of Asher Ga'alanu? Yes, the, the blessings are part of a system. There's a legal system at work here. Halakhic system. You don't just say blessings. Every, every blessing is a purpose for it. So, those, those, those things are blessings that are floating in the air. Every blessing is related to something. These blessings are related to, 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 to mitzvot. What is the mitzvah connected to Asher Galvanu? There are two options for it. The simple reading of it, and the simple pshat, that the blessing of Asher Galvanu is the blessing we are saying after we have completed telling the story. Magid. That mitzvah is called by the Haggadah Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim to tell the story. The telling of the story the way that we have been given it down by tradition consists of telling the story, asking you a lot of questions, or study. And then at the end of telling the story, we read the first two paragraphs of the prayer we call Havel, which ends with the paragraph, B'tzeit Yisrael mi Mitzrayim, when the Jews left Egypt. And after we say B'tzeit Yisrael mi Mitzrayim, which is the beginning of what we call Havel, and we're going to stop and eat. Before that, we make a blessing over what we have just done, which is a blessing over the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. A question one could ask, but, and that blessing, in other words, the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim at the Seder is performed over a cup of wine. That's what you see. The mitzvot of the night are performed over a cup of wine, like Kiddush, like Sheva Brachas. It's a happy day. So you're making the blessings over the wine. So the mitzvah is Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. At the end of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim, there's a bracha. And then, in, since the blessing, since we're doing it over a cup of wine, we make another blessing. Bore Priyagefen. Interesting thing is, by the way, it's a good question to ask, it's a high level question, which is how come there's no bracha before Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim? That's a good question, actually. Why is there no blessing before Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim? is a mitzvah. The Rambam writes, it's a mitzvah from the Torah to, to tell the story of the Exodus on the night of we left. That's what the Rambam says. That's what the Haggadah says. <coughs> <coughs> to tell the story, to study the story. It's a mitzvah. Normally you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing. You take a lulav, you make a blessing. So how come 
there's no blessing, it's okay. How come there's no blessing on Sipu Yitzhi at Mitzrayim? That's the question. So there are many different answers to the question. I'm not sure any of them is that convincing. could be that some mitzvot, the rabbis, didn't set up a blessing. Rabbi Soloveitchik, I think, once suggested, not positive, but I think he suggested that since the mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhi at Mitzrayim is essentially a form of Talmud Torah, his understanding of the mitzvah to tell the story is to study the story, which does appear that way in the Haggadah, questions and answers. Since we make a blessing in the morning to study Torah, since the mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, thank you, since the mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhiat Mitzrayim is a, is essentially part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, that the rabbis didn't feel it necessary to make a brikat mitzvah, the blessing that we often say before we do a mitzvah, prior to the Sipu Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, but in any event, we do seem to have a blessing after Yitziat Mitzrayim, after Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim, Asher Galanu. And this mitzvah is, as it were, performed over a cup of wine. I mean, you can't hold a cup of wine the whole Seder. While you're telling the story, you're asking questions, it's not because the wine's going to spill. So don't pick up the cup of wine. Just pick it up at the end. But, that's, but this is the third. So this first cup is Kiddush. The second cup is telling the story. Each one has its own blessing. The third cup is the benching, Bikatamazon, which is the meal. Bikatamazon on Shabbos and Yantin is part of the meal. That's the good formulation. It's actually part of the meal. And it includes everything of the meal. So and now we say Bikatamazon, we say over a cup of wine, as we do at a wedding. Shabbos. Then you come to the last cup. What is the last cup? So here it's very interesting. Here's, where does the Seder actually end? That's the question. <coughs> now you don't have it. Your photostats, you don't have the whole... The photos that I gave only at the first half of the Seder. It doesn't have the fourth cup. So where do we actually say... So first of all, how does the Seder end? Let's, let's understand. How does it really end? It ends with saying all kinds of songs. Those songs are add-ons. They're not part of the Seder. They're not part of the Seder. Chagadja, there's traditions. I like them. Echad Yodeya, whatever. That's not really the Seder. From a technical standpoint... That's not what the Seder. That's not the Seder. So it's good things to sing, but you can sing, say Shira Shira if you want. You can do all kinds of things. That's right. The Hallel the end of the Seder. The end of Hallel is the end of the Seder. Now the end of Hallel, though, is curious how we say Hallel at the Seder. It's not. It's a very not normal way to say Hallel. This is a whole. This would be a different Shia of the halachic problems. Yeah. What we do at the Seder is this. We ash- and there are actually different customs among the Ashkenazim. There are many customs. But basically it's the following. There's what is called Halel HaMitzri. The Egyptian Halel. What we, what we call normally Halel. And that consists of six psalms. Beginning in Psalm 113. 113, 114, 115, 16. 16, 17, 18. Right. Up to what? 113 to 118. Six psalms. You don't have it in the handouts, I'll tell you. At normally you read all six of them together. On some days you read what's called a half hollow, which isn't really half. You don't read the whole six, like Rosh Chodesh and everything. Fine. At the Seder, we do say six psalms, but we don't say them together. Two psalms we say before we eat, at the end of Magid, concluding with B'tzayt Yisraeli Mitzrayim, that's Psalm 114. And then Psalm 115, 16, 17, 18, we say after we eat. There's the custom before that to open up the door. Some say, Shvo Hamatcha, Goyim Ashoyah Do'ucha, whatever it is. 
we invite Elio in, we pour the cup for Elio Hanavi, these are all customs. But essentially, the real rule is, the halacha, is at the end of this, we are reading the last four psalms of the halal. Normally, when you finish halal, you make a blessing at the end of halal. But at the Seder, we do some other curious thing. We don't make the blessing on the halal right away. There are all kinds of different customs. There's a whole discussion of the Gemara, the Rishonim, and I have a field day with this. But the classical uh, Ashkenazic tradition, I think the Sephardim are the same, is we say two things before we make a blessing at the end of halal. The first thing is we say that what's called the Great Halal, Halal Hagadol, which is Psalm 136, with the tag on Kiwi Olam Chastel, Hodu Hashem Kitov Kiwi Olam Chastel, that's Psalm 136. And after Psalm 136, the practice of the Ashkenazic Jews, I think the Sephardim do the same, is to say, as a concluding blessing, the prayer that begins with the words Nishmat Kochai. Nishmat Kochai is what in the Talmud one group calls Birkat Hashir. So Nishmat Kochai is the end of Psukit Zimra on, uh, on, on Shabbos and Yantiv in the morning. It's one of the most beautiful prayers we have in our tradition. It's a glorious prayer. Nishmat Kochai. And people, of course, run through it and pay attention to it or whatever. Too many words. Too many words. You know what I mean? So the problem is Anyway, it's called Birkat Ashir, and at the end of Nishmat Kolchai, normally Nishmat Kolchai ends with <coughs> paragraph Yishtabach Shimcha Ad Malkeinu. So that's the, the Yishtabach Shimcha Ad Malkeinu is <coughs> the blessing we say in the davening in the morning at the end of Psuki to Zimra. It's similar to the blessing we say at the end of Halel. So the question is, at the Seder, how do we end all these blessings? Do we end it with the blessing of Yishtabach? Or do we end it with the blessing of Havel? How do you work that out? There are two different customs. But in any event, there are two traditions about what you say, what blessing you say at the end of Havel. See the Yishtabach, or it's the one you say at the end of the normal Havel. But afterwards, the, the, the main practice is after you say that blessing, Baruch HaTah Hashem, we say Yishtabach ends, What? That's the blessing at the end of Yishtabach. And then, in most Haggadahs, you would say, Baruch HaTah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaLam, Bari Priya Gafen. The Bari Priya Gafen, once again, is not a separate blessing. It's a blessing combined with another blessing, which is the blessing we sang at the end of all these praises of God, the main one being what we call Hawel. At the same we say the little Hallel and the great Hallel. There's a whole discussion. You, you can't imagine how much this... Because in the old days, in the, the old days being in the, even up to the 10th century, the standard practice was to... Uh, the standard practice was to uh, have five cups. See, the fifth cup is an option. We're, we're pointing the kosher Eliyahu. The kosher Eliyahu is at the fifth cup. But the, the Gemara already says that you could have a fifth cup for the, for the Seder. So the Gemara asked the question, if you have a fifth cup, what is the, what do you say? You, t- you don't just drink a cup. The cup is said over, over, over a, a, a recitation and a blessing. So the Talmud has a view that the fifth cup of wine, if you want to say, have a fifth cup, which is a very common practice, very, probably the prevalent practice was to have five cups. 
up to, for, up, up to about a thousand years ago. And then the fifth cup was recited over So the question is, what blessing do you make afterwards? That, that then became the whole problem. Is, is it, do, 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 you say, do you say the same blessing twice? Yishtabach twice? What do you say? So the whole big, so that, what happened was that we kept saying, the practice became to say halagadol without a new blessing. So we have only four cups. But the cup of Eliyahu, kosher Eliyahu, is actually the fifth cup. So that, but we don't actually drink that cup and we don't make any recitations over it, so we put it on the table. In any event, the fourth blessing, Bari Priyagefen, is in conjunction with the blessing of Ahalel. There is, however, another practice which is very interesting, which is, originates with the Maram of, uh, from, uh, from, from Rutenberg. And actually, this Haggadah, the, the, the handouts I gave you, are the first half of the Maxwell House Haggadah, the old Maxwell House Haggadah. So the Maxwell House Haggadah, which is here, is the Maxwell House Haggadah, so I noticed that they followed the practice of the Maram May, uh, May, May Rutenberg. I'm sure the printer didn't know what the Maram May Rutenberg was, but it doesn't make a bit of difference. The Maram May Rutenberg had a different practice. It's a very questionable one, but it's the Maram May Rutenberg, one of the great, maybe the greatest postsek, medieval Ashkenazic postsek. And he held, you see that if you have a Maxwell House Haggadah, so you will see that in the Maxwell House Haggadah, which was reprinted, I think, a year ago or something, I don't think they changed the... the, the in Maxwell House Haggadah, they have the blessing of Yishtabach, and then, and then they don't have a blessing afterwards, Bari Priya Geffen. Then they have Ayibach Tzia they have that song, Amartem Zevach Pesach, Kilon Na'er, Lushan Ababi Rushalayim, and then Bari Priya Geffen. So that's actually the that tradition, it sounds like nonsense, but that tradition is actually a valid tradition, not a mistake. That's the tradition of the Marami Rutenberg. So there, what he was doing was, he was including other songs before the blessing. Now let me tell you, this may sound crazy, why would you do such a thing? But we do it all the time. And let me explain. Here's something you probably don't realize. It's like this. The third cup of wine is in conjunction with what we call Birkat HaMazon, right? Why is it called Birkat HaMazon? The blessing on the food. Why is it Birkat HaMazon? Grace after meals. It's blessings after. Birkat is blessings after the meals. So the bench, we call benching, right? The benching, which means to bless, the bench, the Birkat HaMazon is a set of blessings. Now how many blessings are there in Birkat HaMazon? You don't have any blessings of Birkat HaMazon, I can tell you. So there are actually four blessings in Birkat HaMazon, but there are a difference between there are three plus one. Okay, I'll explain. The first blessing is Baruch Blessing is a term that ends with Baruch Hashem. The first blessing begins with Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, okay, no matter right? Azana Tolam Kulobutavol, God sustains the whole world. Baruch Hashem, Azana Takol is the first blessing. The second blessing doesn't have to start with Baruch, just end with it. So the second blessing ends with Baruch HaTashem Aretz Hamazon, about the earth, is the land of Israel. The first blessing, God sustains the whole world. The second blessing is about the land of Israel. The third blessing is Baruch HaTashem Bonei Barachamav Yerushalayim. Amen. Blessed is you, O God, who builds Jerusalem. So the third blessing is about Jerusalem, means the temple. So you move from the land and God is sustaining the temple. 
allow it to be rebuilt or whatever. So the first is the world, and then Israel, and then the temple. And after that, Baruchat to Hashem, what? Hazara Takol, the whole world. Hazara Tolam Kulo, God is sustaining the whole world. First chapter of the Chumash, basically. To the world I give the food, right? God says. So, those are the three blessings. Now there's the fourth blessing. The fourth blessing actually starts with Baruch. Baruch Ato Hashem, Elokeinu Ma'ochalam, Ha'kerovinu, Radireinu, Boreinu, Goreinu, Yosreinu, etc. That's a, actually what we have in our in our Sidurim, Bikat HaMazon, it is, a, is an expansion of what the Gemara says you should say as a fourth blessing. In the Gemara, the blessing seems very short. Probably Hatova HaMetiv. Baruch Ato Hashem, Elokeinu Ma'ochalam, Hatova HaMetiv. That was a fourth blessing which was set up by the rabbis to be recited in Birkat HaMazon. Or maybe it's after Birkat HaMazon. It ends with the words, the way we have it, when we call That's why when people say people who know something will say Amen. Because that's actually the end of the blessing. Okay, now, a small point. Baruch Hashem, Yerushalayim, Amen. Why do you say Amen? First of all, what are you saying amen to? Who's blessing you to say amen to? Your own. Is that a nice... Do you usually say amen to your own blessings? Depends who you are. <laughs> you don't. No one in this room does, but some, many people do. Sephardim do. Sephardim often say amen to their own blessings when? When the blessing is the end of a series. Orucha, at the end of... At the end of the Nmariv at night... Hashem, let's say, Shomer Amo Yisrael Ad Amen. Yishtabach Shimcho Ad Malkeinu, Melech Keo Chel Olamim, Amen. The Svarim will say Amen. It's the end of a set. At the end of sets of blessings, the Svarim will say Amen. The Ashkenazim don't, except in one case. There's one situation where the Ashkenazim say Amen after their own blessing, and only one, and that is at the end of the third blessing of Birkat HaMazon. Baruch Hashem, Bonei Barachamov Yerushalayim. Amen, you're saying to yourself. Now why do Ashkenazim say Amen after the third blessing of the benching and they never say Amen any other time? Answer. Because the Ashkenazim want to distinguish between the first three blessings of Birkat HaMazon and the fourth. The first three blessings of Birkat HaMazon are understood by the Talmud to be what they call Dalraita. Those are the key blessings after you eat a meal. And it ends with Yerushalayim. Finished. You say Amen after your own bracha, because the next thing, Baruch HaTashem, or Kenim is not actually part of the benching. It was a blessing instituted to be recited in the benching, but it's not actually considered part of the benching. It's a benching, it's a blessing, it's a blessing you make about those that were killed in a place called Beitar in the Bar Kochva Rebellion, Haruge Beitar. So we want to remember Haruge Beitar, the terrible disaster for the Jewish people. So the rabbis instituted a blessing, Hatova Meitiv, because even after Beitar, the Jewish people continued to live, even after the great destruction. So the institute had blessing, you say all the time, in the benching, But to distinguish those two things, they said after you finish these blessings, the set of three blessings that are from the Torah, Birkat Mazon. You say Amen after your own blessing. And the fourth blessing, Atov Ametiv, when we call Tuv Yolam Ayichasreinu, that's the end of benching. But, 
later on in Jewish history, the Gaonim instituted something else. That after we finish with Ayich Hasreinu, we say other things in the benching. What's called Harachaman. The truth is that the only thing you really have to say after that, the benching ends with Ayich Hasreinu. The only thing that's necessary to say is to thank the person whose house you're eating in. That's actually from the Gemara talks about that. That's an obligation. You have to thank the person whose house you're at. God should bless the Balata Balabayat, Balata Bayat, their family, whatever. There's all kinds of blessings to everything they have. There's actually a longer extended blessing some people say about the whole about more things, more good things should happen. Because we have even though God gives us everything, but people are God's agents to give us things. So we have to be grateful to people too. So fine, whatever. But that's outside of that, the rest Harachaman, 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 all those Harachamans and all this, and other people had other things, that's not actually part of benching. So the question is, let's say a Sheva Brachas. So Sheva Brachas, after benching, you say Sheva Brachot. And the Sheva Brachot are connected, or let's say at the Seder. After you finish benching, the third cup of wine is a benching. The question is, when do you make the blessing on the cup of wine? You should make the blessing on the cup of wine after we call Tuvli Olam That's when the blessings are over. Everything else is an interruption, presumably, in between the end of benching and the cup of wine. But we don't. We actually wait. We delay. We say, we thank everybody. Whatever we say in benching, we pray for peace, right? So the same way we, we wait, we don't make the blessing right away after benching, even though the blessings are over. We want to say a few more things that are connected we don't consider that an interruption. So the Marami Wittenberg said the same thing is true for the fourth cup. That even though the fourth cup, the blessing ends with with Melech Keo Cheo Olami and Mishnabach Shimcha, the blessing's over. You should say a Borei right away. But the Marami Wittenberg said you don't have to. You can sing more songs. Because the singing of the additional songs, in a way, is also part of the Seder. And it's related, I suggested in my Haggadah, to a, a basic theme of the night of Pesach, which is on the night of Passover, to be excessive in things is not bad. Normally, excess isn't always so good, but on the night of Pesach, the additional praises of God, additional prayers, additional questions and responses, additional study. Rabbi Akiva and his comrades were up the entire night learning, so that's not bad. So therefore, the Barami Rutenberg said to include our own songs in the Seder is okay, and you can even delay the blessing of Bari Priya Geffen till after you sang some of your own songs. And the same way we do with benching. With benching, we are not saying the Bari Priya Geffen after benching. We wait. Well, those harachamans are not really part of benching. They're much later additions. Yeah. The first cup. Yes. Not, not, not the Kiddush or the Bori Priya Geffen. The Bori Priya Geffen. Right. The how they justify? <laughs> the better question is how do we justify what we do? What they, what they do makes total sense. What they say is very simple. You're going to drink four cups of wine. The mitzvah is to drink four cups of wine. Whether you say a blessing on something or not, <coughs> it's a different question. For example, let's say you're sitting down at a table talking to some friends. And on the table there's a bowl of fruit. So you eat an apple. Make a blessing on the apple. Bori Priya eats. And then you're schmoozing away. 
And then, 30 minutes later, you're still hungry, you take a tangerine. Do you have to make another blessing on the tangerine? No. Because the Boripriya H you made on the, on, the, on the first fruit covers everything in that city you're going to eat, even though you eat other fruits afterwards. Half an hour later, 40 minutes later, whatever it is, one blessing covers everything that grows from the tree. So the Svarim say, you made the blessing Boripriya Gephod on the Kiddush, and then you're sitting down and you're talking about the exodus from Egypt, and then you're going to drink another cup of wine an hour from now, but you're sitting at the same table, you're at the same place, you're not moving around. So why should you make a Bari Priyagafan on the second cup of wine? You would never do that normally. If you're sitting at a table and you're eating, you can sit at a table for 10 hours and you're gnashing for 10 hours and you don't make any new blessings. You make one blessing, covers everything. So therefore, the Svartim say, you do have to drink the cup of wine, but you don't make a blessing on it because you're already covered with the first blessing. The question is on the Svartim. The question is on the Ashkenazim. On our practice, it may, seems to make no sense. So there's a good answer to it. I can't, that's technical, whatever. But anyway, I want to make the first point about these cups of wine. The cups of wine, first of all, is not so simple. And the, but the main point of the cups of wine are, each cup of wine, that's what's so unique about the Seder, each of these four mitzvot is performed over a cup of wine. The four mitzvot being Kiddush, telling the story, the things we eat, and Hawel. As you can see, the first Kiddush, and it's interesting, the four cups of wine, the first cup of wine... Kiddush essentially begins the meal. That's what Kiddush does. You start your meal on Shabbos with, uh, and Yantav with Kiddush. And the reason is very, we can understand it very well. It makes perfect sense. If you go to a, some kind of a, if you go to someone's house to eat, let's say, you go to a friend or whatever, so you, sit, you, you sit down and you eat. But let's say you go to a fancy reception, okay? Very often to a wedding or something like that, you know? So you don't just rush off to eat, Right? I mean, you eat, of course, but if it's a Jewish wedding, you're eating like crazy, but, but they, don't, they don't, you don't just jump into the meal. The meal's later on. First, you have either butler service, waiter service, smorgasbord, whatever it is. The fancy of the wedding, the less they feed you, but the point is, I like the smorgasbord. Anyway, the smorgasbord, you go around and you, you basically eat five meals before you eat, right? But the point is what? The point is the meal, it's a very important point about meals, that you have drinks before the meal. Drinks before the meal means a very important meal. Mary Douglas has a book about meals. I forget the name of the book. If you start to say, meals are very complicated things. There are all kinds of interesting, such as the biological, it's a social event. And what the way you eat the meal, what you serve at the meal, how you eat the Seder is very important. So the point about the Shabbos Yant of meals is you're starting with drinks. Before you sit down to eat, you start with wine, which means right away it's a very special meal. Kiddush is part of the meal, and the fact of the matter is, you're not supposed to eat before you make Kiddush. So Kiddush actually starts, if you, in other words, the Kiddush actually, without Kiddush, it's Friday night. Turn Friday night into Shabbos. We turn, how do you do that? You make Kiddush. Because when you make Kiddush, the Shabbos meal, it's not just a meal on Friday night. It's a Shabbos meal. So you start the Seder, what do I say, by starting the meal. But, but then you stop eating. You don't actually eat the meal. You delay until you tell the story first. And the second cup is the telling of the story. And you start Hallel. But you don't finish Hallel. It's interesting. You start saying Hallel, first two paragraphs. You stop, perhaps to include the meal in the Hallel. The, the, the meal becomes part of the Hallel. Then we don't talk, then we eat. And then we finish talking. Then we finish saying what we, what we started before. So the first cup is what you eat. The second cup is what you say. The third cup is what you eat. And the fourth cup is what you say. 
So we interweave the eating and the, and the, and the talking, and that's what we call Seder. That, that in the deepest sense, that's what a Seder is. It's, it's the ordering of these two different things, what we say and what we eat. Because one would have said, maybe you eat first and then talk afterwards. Maybe you talk first and eat afterwards. We don't do either of those. We actually interweave them. And that's the four cups of wine. Okay, so the four cups of wine, kosher brach. This is the structure for the, for, the, for, the, for the Seder. Call it a Seder. So I wanted to talk about, that's the first point. The first point is simply to understand, it's very basic actually, to understand the basics about what these things are. Each thing is, it, it all makes sense in, from a certain perspective. It's, it's, a, it's an ordering principle over here. All these are concepts. The blessing is a legal concept. Kosher bracha is a legal concept. So my Salvation was very big on that. It's one of his contributions he made, was to try to show you that the, these different practices all have, they all make a kind of internal sense. Okay? Now, let's move to the second part of these. Our Seder, we Ashkenazim, and the Svartim. Nowadays, for the last thousand years, the core piece of the Seder is these drashot that we say around the text of Arami Ovedovia. I discussed Arami Ovedovia a hundred times. In my Haggadah that we wrote up last year, I have two essays on Arami Ovedovia. If you haven't seen them, they're worthwhile, actually. I think they're very good. They explain the significance of Arami Ovedovia. It's a very strange choice. Arami Ovedovia is of four verses that we choose from the end of the Chubbish, from St. Pasha's Tvarim, which is the prayer of the pilgrim who brings the first fruits to the temple. It's hardly, it would appear to be the natural choice for the, for the Seder. It's connected in the Chumash to, to the Bikurim, to the first fruits, which you bring on Shavuot, not on Pesach. Why, why, and it's not from the book of Exodus, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. So why, why the rabbis, the, the Mishnah actually chooses, why the Mishnah chooses this text? The choices are made by the Mishnah, actually. And why he chose this text is a very good question, and I think there's many good answers. But on this Arami Ovedovi, the way it works at the Seder, this is the core part of our Seder. Whether people know it or not, I'm telling you, it's the core piece of the Seder. And Arami Ovedovi, what the Haggadah does, is it takes these four verses, and it breaks up each verse into different pieces. And on each of the pieces, it makes a, some kind of a statement. I believe there are 21 Drashot. 19 of the 21, 19 of the 21, the Haggadah cites another verse to support the first verse. Two of them it doesn't. Two plus the very beginning it doesn't. But of the ensuing 21 Drashot, on 19 of them, it says, Kamoshanamar, as it is written, and it cites another biblical verse. Now let me make a, just a couple of points about Arami Ovedovi about this, 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 this whole project we have called Midrash. At the Seder we are, we are studying. It's not just about re- reciting. If the rabbis of the Mishnah wanted us to tell the story, just to recite the story of Passover, the Exodus, they would have instructed us to, to read a few chapters from the book of Exodus that you got the story. They don't instruct us to read from the book of Exodus. They instruct us to read four verses of the book of Deuteronomy, which is, it seems very bizarre. But the first point is it forces you to actually try to figure it out. If I say, here are four verses, tell me the whole story, then you've got to look very carefully at the verses, I have a lot of questions. And from the four psukim, you're trying to extract all the meaning. That's what the Midrash does. So it forces the person, takes it seriously, to engage and ask you a lot of questions and try to arrive at solutions, etc. 
first point is of these 19 verses that the Haggadah cites to support the other verse let me start from the simple point it's, it's clear that the 19 verses that are being cited to support Harami Oveda V are not being cited to support it's clear that the Haggadah doesn't believe we don't know who wrote the Haggadah we have no idea no one knows it's only plays of many ancient traditions that it's very old but I can guarantee you one thing that whoever did put the Haggadah together did not distinguish between a document from the book of Deuteronomy and one from the book of Exodus he didn't buy into the documentary hypothesis there's no need to support a verse from Devarim by citing a verse in the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus has no more authority than the book of Devarim for the Haggadah it's all the word of God so why would you have to if God says something is safe in Devarim oh that's correct it says it in Exodus what do you mean it's right because it says it in Devarim Exodus is no more authoritative than Devarim so the, the, the verse commotion Namar is not to support anything in terms of oh it's really true we have a second verse that's absurd so what is it then it's not to, it's not to give it authority it's to explain the verses that are being cited are, are invariably I believe trying to, try to explain something or to de- either to demonstrate a problem or to arrive at some kind of solution let me give you an, an, an obvious example, a simple example, which many before me have suggested. I had a little page to it, but basically it's found in many, many Haggadahs. In fact, I, this, my Haggadah that we wrote last year is being translated to Hebrew now, and the guy who's translating it found some, some Sephardic commentary, never knew, he said, hundreds of commentaries, which says exactly this point. One of the Drashot, let's see where it is in the Maxwell House, at page... It's the last line on page 15. The last line on page 15. And the top of page 16. Very good example. The verse, the, se- the second verse of the, wa- of the wandering Aramean passage. The first verse describes descending into Egypt. The second verse, a very short verse, says what happened to us in Egypt. The verse is, Vayareu otano habitri vayadudu, vayitnu oleinu avodakasha. Maxwell House says the Egyptians ill-treated us, afflicted us, and laid heavy bondage upon us. That's the translation of Maxwell House. Now the Haggadah then takes this little verse and breaks it into three pieces. A vayareu otano hamitzrim, b vayanunu, and c vayaduoleinu avodakasha. Now the Haggadah comments on the top of page 16 in the Maxwell House, vayareu otano hamitzrim, the Egyptians ill-treated us, as it is written, and it cites a verse from the book of Shemot, the beginning of Sefer Shemot, where Pharaoh said to his people, let's deal wisely with these Jews. Let's they multiply. There's a war that join up with our enemies. They'll fight us. They'll rise up from the earth. Now what is this verse trying to demonstrate? It says the Egyptians ill-treated us. And we cite a verse from Exodus. But what is the function of the verse? What is the verse trying to explain? So what many have said before me, I just added one little knage, which is this. If you look at the book of, of Bamidbar, in the book of Bamidbar, when the Jews have left Egypt, it says there that Moshe sends messengers to the king of Edom. And he says to the king of Edom, says, your brother Israel has a request. 
You know we've suffered in Egypt. And we want to pass through your lands. And Moshe, the two psukim, where Moshe describes how we suffered in Egypt. It says we went, we, our ancestors went down to Egypt, chapter 20 of Bamidbar. And the Egyptians harmed us and our ancestors. Moses speaks to the king of Edom, it's two verses, it's exactly parallel to the four verses of Arami Obedovi. But over there it says, the Egyptians harmed us and our ancestors. But the Hebrew is Vayoreulanu. You see, if you, if you ever studied Latin, for example, you remember that there are different cases. And different verbs take different cases. So, for example, in Hebrew, most of the time, the verb lahara, which means to harm, takes what's called the, uh, the dative. Vayoreulanu. They harm to us, you would say, in Hebrew, most of the time. That's what Moshe said to the king of Edom. The Egyptians harmed us and our ancestors. What the Haggadah is noting over here is that in this particular case, the text deviates from the text in Bamidbar and uses not the dative, but the objective case. Not which is normal, but that's the object. Et is an objective case. So that God is bothered. Why does the Torah switch from Milanu to Otanu? To which the, the Medrash gives an answer. I'll explain to you why it says Vayareu Otanu. Why? Because it doesn't mean, says the Haggadah. It's a wonderful Medrash. It doesn't mean they harmed us. That's not what it means. They ill-treated us. That's wrong. That's not how the, that's not how the God understands it. But Vayareu Otanu Hamitri means the Egyptians ascribed to us evil. The Egyptians imputed to us evil. The Egyptians accused us of being evil. By Otanu, they made us look bad. And that's the verse. And what, is, what, what do you mean? That's what Pharaoh said to his people. We have to outsmart them. Why? Because if there's a war, they're going to join up with their enemies and they're going to fight against us and rise up from the land. So the point is, by Otanu Hamitzrim, how God is not interpreting as they harmed us. Because that would be Vayorelanu HaMitzrim. Vayorel Otanu, they made us ra. They made us look bad. Now, when you read this interpretation, first of all, you say to yourself, it could actually be true. The good Midrash could actually be the Pshat. But apart from that, it has actually another benefit, which the Midrash probably is happy to, uh, to, to gain from this, from this as well, which is, if you interpret the other way, the Egyptians harmed us, they ill-treated us, they afflicted us, and they put upon us slavery, that essentially the pshat is, the Egyptians harmed us, and I mean they harmed us in two different ways, vayanunu, and vayinu aleinu avadakasha. But the Midrash in general doesn't like repetition. So they interpret differently. Not that the Egyptians harmed us in as much as they afflicted us and, and enslaved us, but it means something different. The Egyptians gave us a bad reputation. And afterwards, they afflicted us and they enslaved us. And there's a very profound point over here, which the Ramban, we're studying the Ramban of Torah. The Ramban says this in a different way. The Ramban, our Torah, since we have to mention the Ramban, because we're doing the Ramban. The Ramban says, the Ramban has the following question at the beginning of the book of Exodus. It says, Pharaoh says to his people, these people are dangerous, they're going to be against us. Let's outsmart them. And then he plays self-taskmasters to afflict them. And then he enslaves them. 
And then he talks to the midwives to kill the boys secretly. And then he says, throw them into the river. So the Ramban asks the question, why didn't he just say, write it out, throw them into the river? What's all the business of what's outsmart? What, what do you have to outsmart them for? Why could he just kill them? Why couldn't Pharaoh just kill them? So the Ramban says he couldn't do it. He says he would never get away with it because after everybody knows Joseph, Joseph was the savior of the land of Egypt. And the Jews were good citizens and they didn't bother anybody. So one day he's going to wake up and say, kill all the Jews? You can't do that. It's not going to work. So the way to do it, says the Pharaoh, is let me first, let me first propaganda. Let's first say how bad they are. They're really dangerous. They're going to join the enemies. That's the first step. And then gradually, then you have certain laws to oppress them and to enslave them and this and that. And only afterwards, and secretly you start killing them and then you can kill them openly. The Nazis did exactly this, actually step by step, exactly. exactly. And it's not just them. It, that's the way people often behave. It's, so to take the other, you reduce the other person to an object and you gradually persecute them and then you kill them. That's what the Ramban says on the Torah. That's exactly the Pshat. That's what the Medrash says over here. Says the Haggadah, it didn't start with the persecutions. It didn't start with anything like that. It didn't start with the affliction and the slavery. It started with something very different. It started with Pharaoh spreading the rumor that the, that the Jews are actually the enemy. And they will join up with the enemy. Interesting, by the way, the, the verse before that says that a new Pharaoh emerged in Egypt, who didn't know Yosef. And then the, the text plays with that. Because on the contrary, do you, you think they're our friends? On the contrary, for no south, they're going to join up with the enemy. For no south, al sonenu. Says the Agoda, and that's what allowed for Vayanunu and Vayitnu Olenu Avodah Kasha. It's an excellent example, I think, of the kind of medrash that we're talking over here. It's not one text to support another. The first text needs no support. It's God's word. What was support? The second text is no more authoritative than the first. But the second text, Kamosha Nebar, is to explain the first. There's a problem. So the trick is to find out what is the problem. In this case, the problem is the, 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 the use of the word otanu. That's what bothers the medrash. Because elsewhere, it's typically lanu, and it's lanu, as I point out in chapter 20 of Bamidbar, exactly the parallel phrase in Numbers chapter 20. I'll give you one other example of what the medrash is doing. What's also in my Haggadah. This is what I like very much. I think it even could be true. I don't know it's extraordinarily clever, so sometimes that's a, the Yetzirah gets you, but I think it's actually the truth. It's something that actually on the surface makes zero sense, and I will explain. Yes? Just very quick. Are you, are you saying that the people of Israel remembered Yosef, and that was why... No, no, the people, the, the Egyptian people remembered Yosef. That's what I mean, the Egyptian people remembered him, even though the Pharaoh apparently did. Well, the Pharaoh either doesn't know him, or as the Medrash says, doesn't want to know him. Not knowing in the book of Exodus is not just intellectual. He also doesn't know God. People know the things they want to know. You know what I mean? Never, what does it mean, never heard of Joseph, says the Medrash? How's that possible? Joseph saved Egypt, and he also saved Pharaoh. It's his job. Pharaoh has all this wealth. He controls the land due to Joseph. What do you mean he doesn't know Joseph? So, the not knowing in Sefer Shemot, says the Medrash, is a moral deficiency. Let me mention one other Jerush over here, which on the surface makes zero sense. And I think Goldschmidt, in his critical Haggadah, thinks it's just an error. Because it makes no sense, so he thinks. And that's on the top of page 17. 
This is the third verse. We cried out to the God of our forefathers, and, it, and God, it says, God heard our cries. And then it says that God uh, saw. God saw three things on Yenu, and God saw Amorenu, and Lachatzenu. Our affliction, our travail, and Lachatzenu. So what does Vayaret Lachatzenu? What does Lachatzenu mean? What does Lachatz mean? In modern Hebrew, it means pressure. Right? Lachatz can mean pressure. Luchotz, or maybe to oppress, or to press on somebody. So the Haggadah says, What does Lachatzenu mean? Says the Haggadah, Zehadchak. It is Dechak. So Maxwell House says severity employed. Severity employed. That's Maxwell House. Now, Maxwell House has a reason to say that. I have no doubt that that is incorrect, but, but, but Maxwell House has a reason. I'll get to that. Kamosha Namar. And let me, now that that is called a scriptural verse to prove to us that Lachatz equals Dechak, correct? What is the verse they cite? It's a verse from the incident at the snare, where God said to Moshe, Kamosha Namar, as it is written in Exodus chapter 3, Begabra iti yet I have seen the lachats that Mitzrayim is lochates them. From this we learn, says the Haggadah, that lachats equals the chak. Says Goldschmidt, it is critical Haggadah, what we all should say ourselves, it makes no sense whatsoever. First of all, the word the chak is not a Hebrew word. The word the chak is an Aramaic word. Says Goldschmidt, how can you prove from the verse that lachats means the chak? The only thing you could possibly prove from this verse, says Goldschmidt, is that lachatz equals lachatz. Lachatz is dechak. What's the pasuk? Kamroiti yetal lachatz, Asher Mitzrayim lochatzim otam. How does this prove that lachatz is dechak? It proves lachatz means lachatz, whatever that means. The word dechak is not even Hebrew. The Targum says dechak. The lachatz dechak is an Aramaic word. It's probably a mistake, says Goldschmidt. So it's not a mistake, I'm quite convinced but it doesn't seem to make the slightest bit of sense. So I have the following suggestion, which I think is right, correct, actually. First of all, when the Midrash quotes a verse, in general, what's very important is to look at the context of the verse. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. It's the third verse at the snet. The verse before that is the following. God says to Moses in verse number one of the snet, I have seen the suffering of my people. I know their pain, right, etc. I've heard their cries. Next verse. And I go down to save them from the I go down to save them from the oppression of Egypt. And to bring them up from that place. I'm going to take them out of Egypt and bring them someplace elsewhere. Etc. It's going to take them to a good and broad land, milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites and the Amorites, etc. And now, in third verses, and now the cries of Israel have come to me. 
And I have seen the lachats that Mitzrayim is lochets them. Says the Medrash, lachats they dochak. Now what is it picking up? The word dochak, of course, is not Hebrew. But what the God is picking up on is what does the word dochak actually mean in Aramaic? So if you look in the Talmud, you will see that the word dochak, typically in Aramaic, does not mean severity, but it means to be in, an, in, a, in a constricted space, in a narrow space. Narrow space. And what the Medrash is picking up on is this. First of all, in the previous verse, God says to Moses, I will take them out of the suffering, the, the affliction of Mitzrayim and bring them to an Eretz Tova Urechava. The Medrash, first of all, is sensitive to the expression Eretz Tova Urechava, a good and broad land. We have this in our benching, in the second blessing of the Birkat HaMazon. We're very grateful that you gave our ancestors Eretz Chemda Tova Urechava, a precious and a broad, good and broad land. And you took us out of Egypt. And the benching picks up on something very interesting about the word Mitzrayim. That the word Mitzrayim, the benching sees as related to the word Mitzar, which is a narrow place. And contrasts it with Eretz Tova Urechava. We have in Halal exactly the same thing. Mina Mitzar Karatika. I call to you from the narrow spaces. Anani ba Merchav, answer me with Merchav, with enlargement. Rechov, the word Rechov in Hebrew means a broad, broad place. Broadway. Rechov is Broadway. It's a broad, it's a big street, as opposed to Mitzrayim. And the Haggadah is probably picking up on what bothers, it's always a small point that they're picking up on, probably, I have seen the Rachats, that Mitzrayim is Rochets them, and probably the Medrash is saying, the word Mitzrayim is extra. God mentioned Egypt in the previous verse. Of course the Mitzrayim. They're in Mitzrayim. He should have said, Gamra iti et ha-lachatz she-lochatzim otam. I've seen the lachatz that they lochatz them. Meshem Mitzrayim lochatzim otam. So the point is that Mitzrayim means the, the, the place of narrowness. And therefore, the lachatz over here is to be in a narrow place. It's very interesting, by the way, that elsewhere in the Torah we have exactly these two terms coming together. Probably the Darshan has it in the back of his head. And that is in the story when Bilam sets out to curse Israel. So Bilam sets out to curse Israel. God says, don't go. He goes anyway. You want to go? Go ahead. It means don't go. So Bilam sets out, and there's an angel standing with a sword in front of it. Bilam can't see the angel, but the animal he's riding on sees the angel. And the Torah describes what happens three times when this animal sees this angel with a sword. He starts to veer off the path. And Bilam starts to hit him. And he goes from one place to a narrow place until finally a place where you can't move at all. The Torah says he goes to a narrow space. There's no place to go at all. And what happens to Bilam in this narrow space? Remember? That's correct. What's the language? Exactly correct. His foot is crushed against the wall. What's the language? Fatilachetz el hakir, fatilchatz el hakir. Twice lachatz. It's exactly what the darshan's picking up on. He goes to a mokom tsar. The word tsar. He goes to the narrow space. And what happens in the narrow space? Fatilachetz. 
So exactly dochak, so where you can't move. You're in a place where you can't go in any direction. That's 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 what God sees in Mitzrayim. I would say it's, it's it's not just the physical suffering, but it's, it's psychological. Sometimes you feel that you're in a place you you have no options. You, you're just stuck. You can't see a way out of a problem. That's lachatz. That's what God sees. Some, God sees the, the psychological because the people aren't crying out about that. Sometimes you don't even realize yourself. But God sees the situation. Of Mitzrayim means a place where there are no choices. So we're praying in the Hallel, in the, we're in a place of narrowness, we have no options, we're stuck. Anani Bamerecha, give me, give me enlargement, give me, give, me a, give me some breathing room, give me a place where I can make some good choices for myself. That's the prayer, Minameitzar. Minameitzar, the end of Hallel, takes the Egyptian experience and personalizes it. It's where the Hasidim talk about your own Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Everybody's going through her own, his own Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So that's the point over here of, that's the, that's, that's, that's the drush. What does Lachat Seidu mean? It says the Haggadah, it means to be in a space of narrowness where you actually, you're constricted, you can't move. And that's the Pasuk, that's, that's what it means to be in Mitzrayim, in the Mokom Tsar. And we want for the Mokom Tsar always to go to Eretz Tova Urchava. Because in the moment, Mokom Tsar, in Bilam, Vatilachetz, Vatilchatz, right? He's exactly stuck. That's the point. So the Drush is not an error, I think. It makes perfect sense. It's all about Mitzrayim, and the Hawa picks up this thought. Now, that's the second point I want to make. Each drasha, by the way, it's not always easy to figure out. Each drasha, the dash is picking up on something, a contradiction, a problem, a word, syntax, whatever it is, and uses this to make a, a, an observation about this experience, which is not obvious. Sometimes, as in the previous case, it's such a good observation that you wonder whether it's not actually the simple pshat of the Chumash. You wonder, it could actually be true. That is what it means, perhaps. They ascribe to us evil. Let me conclude with one other thought. Ten minutes, okay. So these, we have in this section of Arami Oveda V, there are 21 drushot. 19 of them cite another verse. Two of them don't. 19 do. The question is, is there a rhyme and reason to the overall pattern or not? Is it just a hodgepodge that the darshan here is selecting from various midrashim, psukim, or is there some kind of internal seder to these drashot? It's very hard to know. The Shechter Haggadah, which has some very good pieces to it, by the way, where Josh Kulp collects a lot of the scholarship around the Haggadah, but he claims that the I don't understand it. He claims that for the following reason, he thinks it's, it's hodgepodge. It's not really any kind of misudar thing. But he makes a very interesting point. It's not his own point. He quotes a guy named Jay Ravner. I think it's up at JTS, I'm not sure. But, but um, Jay Ravner says a very interesting thing. And here's what he says. It strikes me that he's right, actually. I have no way to demonstrate it. The, when I was a kid growing up, so the question is, you have these drashot at the Seder. You're quoting a verse from, four verses from Devarim, and you're constantly saying, as it is written and elsewhere. What is the nature of this whole business? If you quote verse number A, then you quote a second verse 
to explain support or whatever, verse number one. What is this? So when I was growing up as a kid, I was told at some point that this is what we call Midrash. And this is the earliest form of Midrash. The earliest form of Midrash is simply quoting one verse in support of another. I was told that as a kid, and when I grew up later, uh, Professor Alivni said that himself several times, and many people have said such a thing. What Ravner says is, he doesn't think that's right. Ravner thinks that, we, says we don't find other Midrashim like this elsewhere. And he thinks, he, he says, I wouldn't call it a Midrash altogether. It's not a Midrash. It's something, they call it a, 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 a litany. It's not a Midrash as opposed to a litany, which is a kind of liturgical recital. Fine. I could buy that. Then Culp says, and if it's just a liturgical recital, we shouldn't work for any kind of eternal order with this thing. It's a recital. You quote this verse, you quote that verse. But that's where me and Culp move off in different directions. I would say exactly the opposite. That if you tell me it's a composition for the Seder, I would say if someone composed something for the Seder, it's more likely that it's not just a hodgepodge. It's more likely that if it's composed for recitation at the Seder, called a litany, a liturgy, or whatever, it strikes me that probably it does have liturgical features to it and may even have some kind of internal order. Now, I can't demonstrate that it has an internal order, but I will say the following. In my Haggadah, I very briefly discussed this in the Haggadah, you could miss it very easily. It's not in the back, it's just under the line, three, three lines. What I notice is the following. You have, you have, you have 21 drashot, 19 verses that are cited. Where are the verses coming from? It's interesting. There are four, four psukim, and you're quoting 19 other verses. Where are they from? So what's interesting is this. The second and third psukim have a total of seven verses, and all seven of them are from the book of Exodus, from the beginning of Sefer Shemot. All seven. That's not so surprising. The first and the fourth verses have, have proof texts from other places. In particular, the last of them, the fourth verse, has six drashot in the fourth verse. The first is, Vayotiyene Hashem Mitzrayim. And then, God took us out of Egypt. And then it says five ways in which God took us out of Egypt. Biyad Chazaka, These are the five ways. On each of these words, the, the Haggadah has a comment citing other verses. Where are these verses from? So of the five verses, three are from the Torah. Three are from the Torah. One of those is from the book of Devarim. Not from Exodus, but from the Devarim. And the other two, one is from the book of Chronicles, Divrei Hayamim, which is what we call Kituvim. And the final verse of the, all the Drashot is from the prophets, from the book of Yoel. Tom Vaesh Timrot Ashan. Now, first of all, that strikes me as very interesting, that the last verse has the selection from the Torah and from the Ketuvim and ends with the Nevi'im, because essentially, Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, or Torah Ketuvim Nevi'im, is exactly the liturgical setup elsewhere, especially for, for Rosh Hashanah. All this proof text of Rosh Hashanah that we are citing, Malchiot, Zechorot, and Shofrot, they all have exactly the same structure. Three verses from the Torah, three from Kituvim, three from Nevi'im, and then a tenth verse from the Torah, which is a request. But of the nine verses, it's Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im, ending with Nevi'im, with the prophecy about the future. And it struck me that the composer of Arami Yovei has the same thing in mind. 
Because the beginning of Arami Oveda V starts with Arami Oveda V, my father, whoever that father is. Maybe it's Jacob, maybe it's Abraham, maybe some paradigmatic father. But you're talking about something in the distant past, way before the exit story of Mitzrayim. He's starting in the past. And you conclude at the Seder, Dam Vaesh Vitimrot Hashan, with the verse from the book of Yoel, which talks about the future, the eschatological future. The great, the day of God, the terrifying and great day which will come. Which I'll get to in a minute. So it struck me that, the, first of all, that the writer of this, the composer of this Midrash has the liturgical feature of citing verses from Torah, Ketuvim, and ending with Nevi'ah. That's number one. Number two, the verse from the Navi is very interesting. And I will say two other things about what I think is the internal structure of this verse. Hope I can do this in a few minutes. First of all, it strikes me that the, that the Darshan on this Pasuk has a particular structure in mind. It says, God took us out of Egypt in, the, in these five ways. Yad Chazakas, Mora, Gadol, Otot, and Moftim. If you look at the Drashot, you'll see that Yad Chazaka and Zroa Natuya for this Darshan refer Yad Chazaka Zoa Dever, Zroa Natuya Zoa Cherev. Dever and Cherev the Darshan understands to mean the, the ten plagues. Dever is the fifth plague. And the Cherev, the killing, is the tenth plague. So the Darshan has... How did God take us out of Egypt with the ten plagues? The first five he calls Dever. The next five he calls Cherev, because that's how they conclude. Fine. That's the first two drashot, those two and three. That's how God took us out. The last two drashot, Biotot Uvimovtim, Right? Otot, says the Darshan, Zehamate, refers to the staff. The staff is interesting because the staff is used to uh, cause, the staff is connected to some of the plagues, but the staff of Moses and the staff of Aaron, for that matter, are not just used in the land of Egypt. The staff is used at the, at, at the sea, place your hand over the sea. The staff is used, Moses takes the staff when he fights against Abmolek. The staff is used in the desert to hit the rock, to get water out of the rock. The staff is used on other occasions. So what the staff represents, I would imagine, is that the experience in Egypt continued beyond Mitzrayim. The miracles of Mitzrayim extend beyond the ten plagues. They extend through the entire desert experience. Uvamov teams Adam. And they cite the verse from the book of Yoel. What blood are they referring to? I presume the primary blood is not the blood of the plagues. But the primary blood is the blood placed on the doorposts and on the windows during the experience of, of, the, of the carbon Pesach. And the verse from Yoel, which is very striking, you should look at it, chapter 3 of Yoel says, In those days, says God, I will rain down my spirit upon the earth. <coughs> the young people will, will prophesy and the old people will dream dreams. And the slave men and slave women will also experience my revelation, says God. And the next verse is, I'll place signs in the heavens, blood, right? Blood and smoke. And it says, In that day, all those who run to Jerusalem and to Zion will be saved. And the story continues, but the other people will not be saved. Because God's presence, God's great revelation will destroy many people. But those in Zion and Jerusalem will be saved. That's the last Russia. 
Now, what does that remind us of? That God's presence is so dangerous, and only those people in the sacred space will be saved. Of course, that's the carbon Pesach. It's exactly what the carbon Pesach is. Carbon Pesach means if you're in a sacred space, and what what demarcates the sacred space in the land of Egypt? It's the blood. The blood. Uvamoftim zeadam. That's exactly the point. Says the Haggadah, and this experience of Egypt doesn't just carry on in the desert, but the experience of Egypt is the paradigm for this vision of the end of days. And the day which which the Malachi calls the day of the great and terrifying day. That's the introduction to to um, to in this week's I mean, Yabalchi Yoel calls it the great and terrifying day, and so does Malachi, which is Shabbos Agadol. That expression, is also found in the book of Yoel. Same expression. So those people who are in a safe place or prepared for the revelation survive it. And that's the Dam. The Dam of the Karban Pesach, which allows you to, to survive the revelation, to encounter God. And that is the key of point for the Darshan. Because the first two are about the ten plagues. The six altogether. God took us out as one. How so? Cherev endeavor, Russia two and three, ten plagues. The last two are Otot and Moftim. It continued into the desert. It's the vision of the end of days. But the middle one, right smack in the middle, is Uvamora Gadol with great with, with great fear. With great Segil That's all right. God's revelation. The point of the darshan of the structure. Is to, is to underline the key point of the drasha, which is Gilui. What is so special about Passover, says the darshan? The key point is Gilui Shechina, that there was a revelation, the first time the Jewish people experienced God. That's the point. And the last, the end of the drasha is Dom Vaesh Betimrot Hashan, that that very revelation in the land of Mitzrayim, amidst the, the destruction, there's a revelation. And that's the promise for the future, <coughs> that someday there will be this revelation. The day of God, Shabbat HaGadol. With Nei I send Elijah the prophet, with Nei Yom Bo Yom Hashem HaGadol V'Hanorah. When you read this week's Haftorah, which is awesome actually, just two verses before that, Umi Yechalkeo Let Yom Bo O. Right? But you remember from, from Handel's Messiah. Who shall abide the day of his coming? It's exactly, that's, that's the lead-in verse, it's not in the Haftorah. It's the lead-in verse the point is of the Haftorah, it's not just Yom HaGadol, Shabbat HaGadol we call it, but the Pasuk is not just Gadol, it's HaGadol V'Hanorah, it's, it's the great and terrifying day. How does one survive the terrifying presence of God? That's the question. Answers the Haggadah, that's the Medrash. Zehadam. We were able through the blood, it means through the carbon Pesach, to, to, to demarcate sacred space. And in the future, that's what it says, and if you open up the book of Yoel, because as I said, you have to look at the whole context. There is the, in those days, the old men will dream dreams, and the youngsters will prophesy. And even the slave men and slave women, it's the Medrash, what the, what the slave woman saw at the sea, Yechezko ben Buzi didn't see, it's based on that puzzle. So the Adratus, that's such a key point of the Seder. It sees the Passover as a model for the future. And that's how we end the Drasha, with the vision of the end of day's vision, which of course were the prophets. So there is a sense, at least in the last verse, no doubt, 
I get the sense that the composer, I say composer, the composer of this litany or lit- liturgy is exactly the opposite of Kulp, 180 degrees opposite of what he thinks. It's quite the opposite. The fact that it's composed for the Seder makes it much more likely, actually, that we have a composition for the Seder. And the fact that it's Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and the fact that it ends from Yoel, and the fact that it ends with the Dam, and the fact that when you look at the Psukim, you'll understand the connection, says to me that what we have here in this verse, and probably elsewhere, is a very careful composition by somebody who intends, through the Drashot, to give us some of the deeper meanings of Pesach.